This morning we're looking at the second part of our studies about resilience. Yesterday was just a basic introduction to resilience and then looking at the nine characteristics of uh, resilient uh, people. And uh, today we're going to try and work that out a little bit by looking at some Bible characters. Um, when I uh, do a full uh, teaching course on uh, resilience, there are maybe four or five Bible characters that I look at, but I didn't feel I could cover all four or five uh, today, so some of them didn't make the cut, as they say in golf. And uh, I've decided to focus just on two, the life of Joseph and uh, uh, an excerpt from the life of uh, David as well. And uh, <clears throat> when we look at uh, these stories in the Bible, they come from long, long ago, hundreds of years actually before Christ. <laughs> and yet when we read these stories, they are so up to date and speak with such relevance to us in our modern 21st century lives. I find that kind of quite incredible. I don't know of any other really comparable stories uh, that there are that could have such an impact to us living in the world in which we live, which is so different. And that, to me, is one of the, the marks of the inspiration of the Bible, actually. And uh, I love this book very much. And when we're thinking about resilience, and today we're thinking really about that connection between our spiritual life and how that gives us greater resilience to deal with the... Uh, things that happen to us uh, in life, then we have here a book of great wisdom. And sometimes on a retreat, one of the exercises I give people to do is to make a list of the scriptures which have spoken to them in the course of their life and which have imparted strength to them when they needed it. Resilient scriptures, as it were. But I want to remind you, uh, as we begin uh, today, uh, with what Paul writes about the Old Testament in Romans 15, he says this, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance, that was the word we looked at yesterday, it's the Bible word for resilience, it means spiritual staying power, constancy under trial, perseverance, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And then Paul goes on to say, May the God who gives endurance, that's that same word that we would translate now, maybe resilience, and encouragement, give you a spirit of unity amongst yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. So one of the reasons that God has given us this book, this miracle book, is actually that we might learn to be resilient. What a resource it is. And therefore how important it is that we get to know it and to know it very well, and let it speak to us. So first of all this morning, we're going to look at the story of Joseph. And uh, for those who weren't here yesterday, let me just <clears throat> uh, say that one of the main characteristics of resilient people is that when suffering, adversity comes into their life, they're able to make some kind of sense out of it. That doesn't mean that they have the answer to it, to that question why that arises in most of our hearts when suffering knocks on our door. <clears throat> but it means they can find some kind of meaning in what's happening to them. And uh, that really aids resilience. <clears throat> a man called Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychologist who was imprisoned uh, by the Nazis in a prisoner of war camp. And uh, he made it his work whilst he was there well, he was a natural observer of people anyway. But he observed that some people coped better than others. And his observation was this, that people who found some kind of meaning and some kind of purpose, even in the midst of those horrible circumstances, actually coped better than those who couldn't do that. And afterwards he wrote what is quite a classic book in terms of psychology or philosophy, which is called Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was his name. And I think that uh, affirms what we know and believe too from our perspective as God's people, that actually if we can find some kind of purpose in the midst of suffering, 
that will help us to cope much better. And one of the stories in the Bible <clears throat> that affirms that whole purpose to us is the story of Joseph. I'm going to assume today that you're quite familiar with the story of Joseph because it's <clears throat> far too long to um, go over. But if not, and indeed you may want to read it again with this perspective in mind, you'll find it in Genesis chapter 37 uh, through to chapter 50. <clears throat> and you'll remember how Joseph had these dreams which he interpreted as meaning that God was going to exalt him above his brothers, and his brothers interpreted those dreams as meaning that he was kind of boasting and showing off, and so this hostility developed between them, so much so that they sold, they threw him in a pit, they were going to kill him at first, but actually they left him to die in the pit. He got sold into slavery, taken down to Egypt, spent time uh, in prison there, and then God exalted him so he became second in the land of Egypt only to Pharaoh and, and helped the nation of Egypt through this time of famine and God brought him into this place and position of great authority and power so that when his brothers come down to Egypt looking for food because famine has reached Israel as well they find that the person they have to deal with is their very own brother and it's a wonderful story really about the outworking of the purpose of God, which is summed up, I think, uh, with two verses which I've put uh, in your notes there. The first in Genesis chapter 45, the first time they meet and Joseph realizes who they are, they still don't know who he is until he reveals himself to them. And this is his response. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And at some point over the years that he'd been exiled from his family, through all the suffering that he's endured the ups and the downs of it, and God was involved as much in his ups as his downs, Joseph came to realize that actually God was at work in these circumstances. I don't think that was his first thought by any means. It would have taken him some time. And maybe it actually only becomes clear as his brothers arrive and suddenly the penny drops that actually although they had plotted against him. In fact, it was God who had brought him here and he had brought him to Egypt for the good of everybody. So the second quotation is a very famous one from chapter 50 and verse 20 where Joseph says to them, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So you see that Joseph has a means of interpreting his life events. They meant it for evil, but with the perspective of faith, he can see that God actually meant it for good. That's what we mean by finding a sense of meaning and purpose in what happens to you. It is not always obvious Sometimes it only comes with the passing of time when we can look back and see how God used what happened for his overall good purpose. So I want to think with you a little bit about what we call the providence of God. I really enjoyed uh, listening to Heather this morning on Romans chapter 8, but I was getting more and more anxious that she was actually going to reach verse 28. <laughs> she stopped just short of that. Well, I wouldn't have minded, actually, because I would have loved to hear what she had to say about it. But if you want to turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, you, you'll know this verse so well. <clears throat> Where Paul writes this, and we know... That in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according 
to his purpose. That is one of the great anchor scriptures of our lives. Paul says we know. Here is something that we know. How do we know it? We know it because of the history of God's people, because this great doctrine is written for us in the lives of people like Joseph, and not Joseph only, but many other people you can see it being worked out. We know because the Holy Spirit reveals it to us and teaches it to us. And the Apostle Paul is doing that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we begin to know it because it becomes our life experience as well. We know, Paul says. And this is the great anchor truth for our lives. We know that, the, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. In the all things of life, whatever happens to us, somewhere God is at work causing his purpose, his good purpose for us to come to pass. Now that I don't think means that all things are sent by God. Some things happen to us that even God doesn't want to happen. We call that his permissive will as opposed to his directive will. He allows certain things to happen because he has left a certain degree of freedom in the world. And even as God's people, we live in a world which is fallen and has been affected by the fall. So we have earthquakes and tornadoes and floods and famines and all kinds of natural disasters. And even as God's people, we find ourselves caught up in these events. So we live in a very fallen world and that is one of the understandings we have about why there is suffering in the world, because the world is not as God intended it to be. We are waiting, as we were reminded this morning, even creation itself is groaning for the day when God's purposes will be fully ripened. We also experience human sinfulness, our own sinfulness and that of other people. And sometimes we cause pain to others and they cause pain to us. So human sinfulness is a factor, one of those all things that is being spoken of here. And then we have to remember too, we have a malevolent enemy, the devil, who is malicious in everything he does. And therefore also attacks people and God's people in particular. But this is the wonderful truth that we know, that whatever happens to us in all these things that come our way, God is still in control. And he is working out his good purpose for you and I. And with the eyes of faith and with the passing of time, we can begin to see that and to interpret it. And it gives us confidence as we come to terms with some of the unexpected things that may happen to us. So that's what we mean uh, by the providence of God. It requires a measure of faith and it's best seen with hindsight. But we believe it because it is what the scripture says very clearly. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called his purpose. That purpose, by the way, is that we might be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. How do we become like Jesus? Because suffering produces something in us. It actually produces something of the life of Christ. We said yesterday that adversity was necessary for growth for the blossoming of resilience within us. And in the circumstances of life, even those that we would not choose to go through, if we hand our suffering over to God, that suffering becomes redemptive and it becomes formative. It forms something within us. Spiritual formation, I love that term because it, it suggests that there is a growth that is taking place in my soul. Spiritual formation is not learned in the classroom. It can only be learned in life. It happens in life. And God is at work in all the circumstances that happen to us. So that's just a brief kind of thought about the providence of God, which we see so wonderfully displayed in the life of Joseph. So Joseph can look at his sufferings and he says, well, you meant to do me harm there. But look at this. God has blessed us all through what happened and I'm now in this position where I can help you and I can provide not only food for you, but I can provide a home and lodging for you. And so the whole 
of Jacob's family come down into Egypt because God has put Joseph, he sent him ahead of them. That's an amazing way to understand and to interpret what actually was going. A couple of quotations, one from Alice de Begg. He says this, This great verse is a promise from God that we are not the hapless victims of life. At the mercy of chance or fate, we are not driven by some blind impersonal force. On the contrary, we are the objects of God's providential care. We are under his guiding and protecting hand. God's providential care. And then the second one from Eric Little, the famous sportsman, commissionary, who was actually imprisoned in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, and I think that's where he died. He wrote this, Circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans, but God is not helpless among the ruins. God's love is still working. He comes in and takes the calamity and uses it victoriously, working out his wonderful plan. Sometimes we find ourselves amongst the ruins. Things have collapsed. I told you yesterday about my friend Mags, who's writing a book about her experience of losing her niece, who was very close to her like a daughter, at a very young age through cancer and terrible suffering. The title of that book is taken from those words of Eric Little, which came to her when she was struggling with her own response to that dreadful news and and awful situation. And the book's title is God Among the Ruins. Because there is where transformation takes place often, when the bottom falls out of our world. So Joseph's story teaches about the providence of God, helps us to find meaning. But the second thing that we see in that story is that we can see how suffering produces something in his life. This arrogant young man has to be humbled and made usable by God. And so in all this experience, God is actually refining and purifying Joseph himself. The best way to understand the Bible, I often find, is by reading what the Bible says about the Bible. And the best way to understand uh, the story of Joseph uh, is by reading Psalm 105. Because Psalm 105 gives a summary of the story of Joseph and interprets it for us. So if you like, this is the Holy Spirit's commentary on the last part of the book of Genesis. It's summarized for us. Psalm 105 says this, He called down famine on the land, that's God, and destroyed all their supplies of food, that's meaning Jacob and his brothers, and he sent a man before them, Joseph sold as a slave. For God's plan and purpose to come to pass, it was necessary to get Joseph to Egypt, and he did that because he was sold as a slave. Providentially to the Ishmaelites, providentially to Potiphar, providentially coming into the house of Pharaoh and so on. So many instances of God's providence at work, if you read that story. Verse 18, his suffering was very real. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. Till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. The king sent and released him. The rulers of people set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler over all he possessed, to instruct his princes as he pleased and teach his elders wisdom. So what happened here was that two things. First of all, the dreams were true and they did come to pass. And Joseph found himself in that place, not of arrogance domineering over his brothers, but just in the place where because of the position God had put him in, he was able to help them. But secondly, what that word says there is the word of the Lord proved him true. Not just the dreams, but proved him true. You see, that promise tested him as to his metal, if you like, as to his character, and he proved to be faithful to God in the midst of all his sufferings. It proved him to be true. It changed him. It chastised him in some ways. It disciplined him. 
It formed him and it shaped him. And we were reminded yesterday of that other great verse in Romans chapter 5, which when we're trying to develop a theology of suffering, must be high on the list of (coughs) our understanding. Romans 5 verse 5, verse 3, sorry. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces something. What does it produce? Perseverance. That's that same word, endurance, what we might call resilience. Stickability. Seeing things through to the end. Suffering produces something. It is fruitful in our lives. We don't welcome it. We don't seek it. But if it happens... We're not without a sense of meaning and purpose because we know this is one of the ways that God will form and shape us. And perseverance produces character. That's how we become like Christ. The character of Jesus formed in us. And character, hope. Because in the midst of that suffering, God brings his hope to us. We're reminded that he will bring us through. He will deliver us ultimately. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured in out in as God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So the Holy Spirit is there accompanying us through all of this and ministering hope to us. I've given you a list of other verses that talk about uh, suffering, and uh, I just want to uh, read the verses from one Peter because this is pertinent, I think, to what was happening for Joseph and what so often happens in us. The psalmist says that. The word proved him true. It proved his genuineness. And Paul says there's something that is proven when we face, uh, Peter says, sorry, there's something that is proven when we face sufferings and when we give our suffering to God. So 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. So Joseph allowed God's suffering to accomplish its purpose. Thirdly, he found healing for his pain and there was pain. And he did find healing. Some healing comes with the passing of time. Some healing comes through the comfort that is given to us, even from other people. And one of the great sources of comfort and healing uh, for Joseph was the fact that he found himself a wife, and with his wife he had children. Uh, Two children. And uh, in uh, chapter 41 there, Verses 50 to 52, you read what uh, Joseph says about that and how that helped him to find healing. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh <clears throat> and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. So that was the first thing that was happening. He was now experiencing the healing of forgetfulness, the right kind of forgetfulness. He was no longer living in the past and dwelling on what had been done to him. He's solely being released from that burden. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So the other thing that healed him was that he saw God was still using him and he saw that God had raised him up to this position for a purpose and for a reason. So healing came through other people <clears throat> and through the circumstances of his life. But the th- third strand of his healing only came when he was reunited with his family. And when that happened and he saw his brothers, he burst into tears. Not just once, but about seven different times uh, in the the story of Joseph, we find he's actually wailing his eyes out. We spoke yesterday about the need to acknowledge emotions, not to suppress them, 
to express them. And Joseph was not afraid uh, to do that. Uh, chapter 42, just to read uh, one example. When he sees them, he says, he turned away from them and began to weep. And uh, on other occasions, he's crying so loud that uh, everybody's embarrassed by his response. But that's the way that healing comes. There is healing in crying in tears. I have a psychologist friend, Dr. Debbie Hawker. She often speaks about the fact that when you cry, it is bringing healing to you. Hence, don't be afraid to cry. Uh, maybe that comes easier to some people than others. But we should never be afraid of our tears because that is part of the healing that comes. And then there comes a wonderful uh, forgiveness and reconciliation between Joseph and his brother. So I, don't, I want to pause there because we've got another story to look at and I want to give you a moment to ask any questions about that. What am I saying here? I'm saying that in the providence of God, some of the things that happen to us we would never want to happen, but God can work all things together for our good and his good purpose in our lives so that ultimately when we look on it, back, back on it, we can say, God, you were in that. I didn't understand that at the time, but I can see it now. Let me share just one story from my own life. Uh, my wife and I were missionaries in uh, East Malaysia on the island of Borneo. Uh, when we went there, we went there for life, uh, we thought. And uh, I loved being there. I just enjoyed every moment of it. I was in my element. We had eight very fruitful, very exciting years uh, on the island of Borneo. Church planting, starting new congregations. I loved every minute of it. We came home for our second furlough with our two children who were born during that period. And uh, whilst we were at home, we got the news that we were not, not able to go back. And they're not able to go back, actually, because although I thought I'd been doing very well in terms of the mission and I was being trained up for future leadership, uh, one particular person took exception to us and our kind of charismatic stance and uh, refused to welcome us back to the field. So we were left with two children, no house, no job, just at a moment's notice. And uh, the bottom fell out of my world. That's what we called yesterday a life disruption. <laughs> when it was announced in our church that we were not going back, the whole church broke into applause because they wanted us to stay. <laughs> that was nice. But I burst into tears because I felt that the thing was most dear and most precious to me had been taken from me. And we had to recover from that. And uh, God was with us in, in marvelous ways, provided house and so on. And, uh, and, and, but I would say it took two years before I felt on an even keel again. And very wonderfully since then, I've been back many times now to Malaysia and I still go to Singapore. God has opened up a wonderful door of opportunity. And, I, and later this uh, year, I'll be speaking at a big conference for, for other missionaries from that same organization that I belong to. <laughs> kind of God has a wonderful way of restoring these. But the greatest thing that happened to me was that when I began teaching other missionaries about cross-cultural work, and we began to do... Uh, seminars for people returning from their assignments overseas, I realized that many people experienced what I'd been through. Many people. And because I'd been through it, I was equipped <laughs> to help them through their own transition in change. And that was some ten years later, and I suddenly, God, I can see <laughs> you brought good out of this. That's just one instance from my own life. Let me give you a moment or two if you've got any questions. I know this question of providence is quite a puzzling one for many people. That's why sometimes people talk about the mystery of the providence of God. Um, but uh, hopefully I made it clear enough. But have you got any questions you'd like to share, ask, or reflections you have? Just very quickly, I wanted to come back to your point, Tony, about tears being... Tears, tears, yes. I wondered whether some tears of... Sometimes we, we cry out of frustration, self-pity, yes. yes. bitter yes. tears. I wondered if you could comment on that. Well, I'm not the expert on tears. It's Dr. Debbie Hawker who's the expert on tears. I've heard of so many talk, but I think there are different kinds of tears. 
But even tears of frustration are getting it out of your system. There's something that is released when, when you... It's the emotional release that, that it brings. But she also says it does something to the brain as well that helps you to adjust and to cope and to feel... Be- Most people feel better after a good cry, I think. <laughs> so uh, so don't, there's, there's a great fear of tears and weakness. You may have seen the interview with Theresa May or heard it, where the interviewer was you know, pressing her, pressing her, pressing her, until she admitted that when the election went against her, she shed a tear. And then the interviewer felt very triumphant because she'd made her acknowledge that she actually shed a tear, as if that were a crime, as if that was something that human beings shouldn't do, particularly politicians. And then afterwards on the radio, as I was into this big debate, you know, should politicians cry in, in public and so on? And they think, what are they talking about? <laughs> we are human beings, aren't we? Shedding tears is not a sign of weakness. Maybe some of us as men, we were brought up with that, uh, you know the saying, big boys don't cry, so don't shed a tear, keep a stiff upper lip and all that kind of thing. We're not very good British people at expressing our emotions, and sometimes it gets all bottled up, and it's very damaging when it's all bottled up inside you. So a little bit about tears, but I'm not the expert on tears. Yes, healing tears. So healing tears, and that often happens in worship. I, I love that point in worship when uh, tears come. And you, you ask somebody, are you upset? No, I'm very happy. And, and, and there is that sense of healing. And I, I spoke to you yesterday about my wife's situation, uh, illness that she's facing. I went to church by myself yet again on Sunday morning. I was feeling strong and so on. And then we began to sing, uh, There is a Hope, that song. And, and as we sang that hymn, I just started to cry. <laughs> just touched me. And it's, it's the way that God ministers to us and brings resilience to us. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He knows what we need. Okay, we need to uh, press on, but if you've got other uh, concerns about it, uh, please do speak to me. Let's look at the story of David. I love David because he's a warrior who was also a poet. He was a real man. You wouldn't kick sand in David's face. He was a soldier who was a great lover of God. And uh, I get upset about people who imply that, you know, masculinity and spirituality uh, don't go together. Uh, I told you, I I play walking football. I must be a real man if I play walking football. (laughs) Real men play walking football, you, you know that. But David was a, a, a real man and a model to us. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter one, one Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. David and his men, and, and let me give you the context uh, for this. Uh, this is the period in David's life before he has come to the kingship. He's been anointed by Samuel, but uh, Saul is still on the throne. Saul has taken a great dislike uh, to David. He's wanting to kill him. David is on the run, living in the wilderness. And many of the Psalms, the early Psalms, come out of this period. You see, spiritual formation happens in the hard places of life. And the hard places of life are amongst the most creative places of all. That's where some of the deepest poetry, the deepest music is kind of crafted. The deepest kind of art comes out of those uh, deep places, really. And, And David was in these deep places, and he was... 
in such a state that he'd actually gone over to the Philistines and allied himself with uh, uh, Achish, uh, king of Gath. And, but eventually the Philistines cottoned on to who this was, David, and they said, we don't want him, he's likely to turn against us. And so he has to leave that place. <laughs> and uh, so David and all his men returned to where their base camp had been, a place called Ziklag, where the women and the children and the older people had been left whilst they'd been out fighting their wars. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. So that's the life disruption. It's a hostage situation. Everything they own has been burned to the ground, but everyone who means something has been taken away. That's what David comes home to find, to discover. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Verse 4, so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. These are warriors. These are battle-hardened soldiers, fighting men. But when they survey this scene and they realize what's happened, they are reduced to jelly, to tears. They weep until they have no strength left to weep. That's trauma. And trauma and resilience go together, actually. Because resilience is our response when we find ourselves faced with a catastrophe. We don't always feel resilient. We made that point yesterday. We don't feel we can do it, but somehow we do. Somehow we get through. Verse 5, David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. But added to that, David has the burden of leadership. Verse 6, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. That so often happens, doesn't it? One of the first stages or responses to grief is that we're angry, we want someone to blame. And that anger has got to go somewhere, and it often goes to people who are in leadership. And uh, it is kind of projected onto somebody else. So they turn against David, not for any reason, not done anything wrong. Well, maybe they held him responsible and accountable. That's sometimes what people want. You know, who is responsible for this? Who's going to blame? Who's going to carry the can? They're ready to stone David. So he's got that added dimension to what's going on. And then we have this wonderful scripture. But David found strength in the Lord his God. David found strength in the Lord his God. One of those nine characteristics was that resilient people have a vital relationship with God. Which means that when the crunch comes, their faith kicks in. It, it, it's a real faith. This is a vital living relationship with God, which you begin to value when trouble comes and hits you. You find actually what is there. When the storms blow, we realize what foundation we have been building on all along. And if we were building on sand, our house may well collapse. But when we're built on the rock... Even though the winds come and blow, the house will stand firm. David found strength in the Lord, his God. So here what we see is the connection between spiritual vitality and resilience. In other words, the fact that our faith can actually help us to deal with the disruptions that life brings to us. He had a vital relationship with his God. What does it mean? Well, let's try and unpack that a little bit. First of all, this little expression, the Lord his God. We know that from a boy, David came into that living relationship with God out on the hillside and began to perceive that as he cared for his sheep, so God was watching over him 
And he penned that beautiful psalm, The Lord is my shepherd. And I think it was Martin Luther who said, the most important thing in religion are the personal pronouns. When you can say, the Lord is my shepherd. Not just a shepherd, he is. Not just the shepherd, he is. But the Lord actually is my shepherd. And that is a foundational truth for your life. That's what your life is built upon, that deep personal relationship with God. So Psalm 18, verses uh, 1 to 3, just as one example. Again, this psalm was written, it came out of a time when God delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold. He piles up image after image to describe his relationship with God and the trust and the confidence that he has in his God. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And there are other biblical images there for that relationship with God. What is that relationship with God like? How do we conceive of God? Who is God to us? Who is God to me? That's a very important question. Is God the kind of God who would abandon you in your moment of need and trial? The answer is no, he wouldn't. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus, according to Romans 8. He is my rock, he is my fortress, he is my shelter, he is my stronghold, he is my shield, my high tower, he is all those things to me and more besides. But it also says he strengthened himself. There was an, another occasion earlier when he needed strength and Jonathan, his friend, came and strengthened him. Jonathan strengthened him. But Jonathan is not here. There is no Jonathan. Again, we spoke yesterday about resilience and spiritual friendship, companionship. But sometimes we find ourselves on our own. There is nobody there. That means we have to be deeply rooted in God ourselves and we have to be able to learn how to strengthen ourselves, how to receive the strength that we need from God. We can't always depend upon other people. We can't always depend on our churches. We have to have it deeply within us so that we can make our own response. And I ask myself, what did David do? How did David strengthen himself? We're not actually told, so in a sense it's just my imagination, but I think the first thing that David did would have been to step out of that situation, to step back and find a place of peace and quiet so that he could recollect himself, so that he could anchor himself again in God. And I think David would have been able to do that because his whole life had been lived in that kind of intimate relationship with God. You cannot create an intimate relationship with God in a crisis if it's not there already. You cannot do it. It's impossible. Your emotions would not allow that to happen. It has to be there. It has to be in place. Because when the crisis comes, you have what you have. Nothing more, nothing less. That's why every day we're actually building that relationship with God. We are storing it up so that when the time comes, I have something <coughs> deposited within me. There's a lovely verse in Psalm 84, uh, which is a psalm of pilgrimage. It says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. And pilgrims, spiritual pilgrims, are those who whose strength is in God. And they have set their hearts on pilgrimage. They are determined to keep following God no matter what. And one translation of that uh, verse, Psalm 84, verse 5, I think I put it in, in your notes. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't, I'm not sure. Oh yes, it's there. Psalm 84, verse 5, it, it, it's translated, in, in whose heart is the way to Zion? Or as a, a, a chorus put it, uh, that I knew from long ago, it says, and the highway to your city 
runs through my heart. It's based on that verse. It's like there is a pathway. There is a roadway that takes me to God. So that there is this kind of automatic response that when I find myself in crisis, what does my heart do? It reaches out to God. There's a pathway. The highway to your city runs through my heart. Now that pathway is built brick by brick, inch by inch, through our daily relationship with God. That's why those daily times with God, times of Bible reading, of prayer, times of fellowship, times like this when we are being taught and we are receiving, actually we are depositing something into our spiritual bank account. We are building a pathway and it takes time to build a pathway. But the more you do that over the years, the more that pathway is being established so that it becomes your automatic response. I love all kinds of sport and for a while I was chaplain to that very famous football team that has been mentioned already, Barnsley FC. (laughs) And uh, I would watch them training every day. And day in, day out, week by week, they practiced the same routines. Corners, free kicks, penalties. So monotonous, so boring. But you know why they do that? So that when the game comes, and the pressure's on, and the noise of the crowd is there, they will do automatically what they should do, without thinking about it, because it's so ingrained within them. And when we have our times of quiet and, and, and seek to build this devotional life in God, sometimes nothing, mostly nothing special happens, but actually something is happening. You are building a highway to his city. So that when the time of trouble comes, something is there. When you look at the Psalms and read them, you can see something of what David's response might have been. So the first thing he would have done, surely, would have been to pray. Psalm 5. I've given you lots of examples. You may take time to read them through. But this is an example of what David might have done. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my request before you, and I wait in expectation. What's his first thing? It's to cry to God. This is no formalized prayer. This is no liturgical prayer. This is a heart cry to God. This is a reaching out to God for his help and for his strength. That's prayer. That is real prayer. It's an instinctive response that, Lord, here I am. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need your strength. I'm sure he prayed. Pray for wisdom. Pray for guidance. I think also, I'm going to change the order here. I think also he may have cried his tears and prayed his cries of lament because lament is part of dealing with the pain that we feel. Many of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. I've written a book about that because it's called Deep Calls to Deep. Um, because I feel it's so important that we learn how to bring our sadness and our grief and our sorrow and our questions and our complaints to God. Psalm 13 is an example. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of position where you've been crying, Why, Lord? How long? Why don't you do something, God? You see it right throughout the Psalms. The Psalms give us words to use with God. Many of these Psalms are Psalms of lament, of of grief and of sadness. But always they come through to a place of trust. Apart from one, there's only Psalm 88 which doesn't. But all the others, eventually when it's been processed, when the anger's been expressed, the questions have been asked, the uncertainty's there, eventually something happens. There's a turning point. And so Psalm 13 goes on to say, verse 5, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. So trust is born in these times of difficulty. And I think trust is something that really delights the heart of God. When he sees that in our confusion and pain, in our not understanding what's going on, in the darkness that surrounds it, we choose to trust, it delights the heart of God. 
It delights us and it confounds the enemy because the enemy cannot believe that people love God for God's own sake. <laughs> That's the story of the book of Job. Brendan Manning, a writer on the spiritual life, he says this, Sometimes it may, more, may mean more to God when I say I trust you than it does when I say I love you. See, when everything's going well, it's easier to say I love you, Lord. But when the bottom's fallen out of your world and you turn to God and you say, God, I don't understand what's happening. I'm hurting. But God, I trust you. I trust you. Bring me through this. That delights the heart of God. That is faith at a very deep place. And then in the Psalms we also see that time of waiting because sometimes things, our prayers are not answered immediately. Sometimes we have to wait for a long time. That's also an aspect of trust. Maybe did some, David did some of all those things. But very briefly, just uh, one thing that happened. Immediately when he'd had that time alone, when he stepped back, then he comes back. And in verse 7 it goes on to say, Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me to the ephod. Abiathar brought him to it. And David inquired of the Lord. This was an Old Testament way of... Uh, deciding what was God's will. It worked for them. It's not a New Testament pattern, but it was really was like the casting of lots. But they believed that God would be in it. David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. The rest of the chapter is about how God enabled David to rescue those who had been captured. The rest of the chapter is wonderful to read as well because it shows the largeness of David's heart at work, and that largeness of heart was being formed through his own suffering and difficulty. So David learned to strengthen himself in God, and we've got to learn that. Nobody can do that for you, friends. We have to build something inside us that is there when we need it. Let me tell you also another uh, little illustration from my own life. It, it's, it's, some ways it's a little bit trivial, but in other ways it wasn't at the time, not that trivial. I was over here, I think in January or February, to lead a retreat up in Larn, And uh, I came over on Sunday night, ready to start first thing on the Monday morning. And uh, I put my luggage in the hold, but it didn't arrive. So I went to the counter and uh, explained that the bag had not arrived. So she said, well, uh, when it turns up, uh, there'll be a later flight coming. We'll bring it to where you're staying. Where are you staying? Well, I didn't know where I was staying, actually, because somebody was meeting. <laughs> but I knew I was going to the conference center, so I gave them the address of the conference center. And uh, so I, I left, got to my place where I was staying. But I had no uh, clothes, no wash, washing gear with me. And all the teaching notes that I had for people uh, were in my suitcase. So my host provided me with a toothbrush and some toothpaste, and I couldn't get shaved, so I arrived at this uh, conference center the next morning a little bit disheveled, feeling disheveled anyway, and, uh, and I had to start uh, the day and couldn't give the people the notes that I carefully prepared and brought for them. So I told them what had happened, and uh, we all prayed that the suitcase would arrive. Well, I went through the morning, no sign of the suitcase, got into the afternoon session. Oh, before, before we get there, whilst I was in the house, the other thing that happened was, I just had that feeling, where is my passport? Oh. Yeah. And I, I, I'd lost my passport, so I'd phoned the airport and said, Did I, I remember giving it to the girl at the counter uh, about the lost baggage, that's the last time I had it. So I phoned there, did I leave it there? No, you didn't leave it here. Phone the security, did I leave it there? No, no, no passport's been handed in. So I not, not only lost my luggage, but I lost my passport. So I was going to teach about resilience, you see. <laughs> <laughs> so I began by saying, I'm going to have to practice here while I'm preaching because I've got no luggage, I've no teaching notes, and uh, I've lost my passport. So anyway, we got through the afternoon, and I think it was the next day uh, the luggage arrived. Great, so I got my luggage, but still no passport. And uh, so uh, we, we had a time of prayer, and, and somebody said, I think you will find your passport, but it will be where you don't expect it to be. So that was okay. That was a word of faith. <laughs> but I was worried 
tomorrow morning when I go to the airport where I'm going. So next morning I got up and I started packing my suitcase. And uh, that suitcase has got several different, different pockets. There's one pocket that I never go, I never use it. And for some reason I felt inside it and there was my passport. <laughs> I don't know how it got there. Because I certainly didn't put it there. And nobody at the airport said, it's in your bag. They delivered the bag, but they didn't say your passport is here. But it was there. And it was a wonderful example to me of how God meets us. I know it's a trivial thing, but, you know. And, it, and I remember on the after, one of the afternoons there, I said to the lady who was organizing the conference, I said, before we start, I just feel I need to praise God this afternoon. Can we just, you know, in the midst of all that I'm feeling at the moment, I just want to sing praise to God. And we did that. I think that's the kind of thing that David did. It's in the midst of all that's happening, God, I just want by faith to lift my voice to you and glorify you. Oh, that's just a little story. Right. Time for one or two questions or comments from you, finally. Anything from you? Maybe you can think this afternoon about how God's providence has been at work in your life. Look back over your life. Can you see examples where something happened and in the long run it turned out to be for good rather than for evil? And can you also think maybe about how you can strengthen yourself in God? What that might look like for you. Can I just ask? Yes, a question, yes. How do you strengthen yourself whenever you're in the middle of all um, the, the crisis? When you can't pray, when you can't yeah. leave, when you, you just you're angry at God, you don't want yes. anybody Yes, you? that's right, yeah. You just do this. You just lean. You lean on what is already there. The, the, the rock on which we build our lives. And sometimes you can't do that. And it's, like you say, it's too late when the time comes. You can't build it then. It has to be there. And leaning is about trust. And sometimes that's all we can do. Trust. That's why trust is the highest response that the Christian ever makes to God. I can't pray. can't do anything. All I can do is lean on you, God. But that's enough. That's enough. Because underneath are the everlasting arms and he will hold you and he will be your deliverer. Amen. But it will take time. Sometimes it takes time. That may seem like a simple answer, but it's not. It's a very profound answer. Because you may not feel that you're trusting. But if you're leaning, and all you can say to God is, God, I'm just leaning on you. Leaning on Jesus. Leaning on Jesus. Safe and secure, whatever betide. That's enough to carry you through. And remember this, that it's God's grip on you, not your grip on Him. So even when you don't feel God, He has still got hold of you. In Africa they have a little saying, the Christians there, when you can't feel His hand, trust His heart. Because sometimes you can't even feel His hand. You have to trust His heart that he is still God amongst the ruins and he will be your deliverer. Somebody else? Yes. Uh, Amy Carmichael, the uh, Northern Ireland missionary, yes. missionary in Port Yes. Um, she wrote a book, book called Rose from Briar. Mm. And uh, she said that uh, a lot of books for people who are suffering of one kind or another are written by people who are well. Oh, yes. But because of her own experiences. Yes. She was able to write a book for six, six people. Rose from Briar. Yeah, Rose from Briar. Amy Carmichael. And it was a very, uh, very yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's why the one of the gifts of suffering, Paul says, we comfort others with the comfort that we have ourselves received. So that's why suffering is so formative, really. And and very often people find that because they have been through certain things, they are able to help others simply because they have been there. They know in a way that theory doesn't help you to know. That's right. 
that moment, that turning of the eye towards God. What is that him says, prayer is the burden of a sigh, the shedding of a tear, the upward glancing of the eye when none but God is near. That's prayer as well, really. The shedding of a tear. And yes. yeah, I was just going to say, share an insight that I find helpful that when you hit the rock bottom, you're, you're standing on the rock. You're standing on the rock. When we hit rock bottom, we are standing on the rock. We find that is what is underneath us. But if you've got any uh, other comments or questions, uh, I'll be staying around, so no need to run away. But I know some people have to go to get children. Let me just pray. Uh, for you, we have a third session tomorrow morning uh, here. We're, tomorrow we'll be looking at how Jesus prepared his uh, disciples uh, for that time when uh, they would be on their own. So we'll be looking at resilient disciples uh, tomorrow morning. Father, we know that life sometimes brings great difficulties to us, even as your people. And we don't always have answers, and we can't always find our way through. But we can trust, Lord. And we pray for that grace to be given us. That, Lord, when the heat is on, when the battle is fierce, when our souls are battered and bruised, may we have that grace just to be able to lean on you, Lord. When we have no prayers to offer, no words to say, we can still trust. So help us too, Lord, to be daily strengthening ourselves in God too and to be storing your word up in our heart and to trust that you are at work even in the ruins of our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 It will just, yeah. Thank you, Tony. Yeah.